You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for being here. And I am excited to talk once again to our guest, Alex Salter, uh, a man who is way too intelligent to be on this program, but uh, is one of those rare folks who is incredibly accomplished, incredibly smart, and able to talk in terms that even I can understand when it comes to economics. Alex, I was a C student. Uh, in my high school economics class, which is rare for a libertarian because it's all about economics. Now, well, go I'm ahead. happy to I'm happy to do what I can to elevate the public discourse, but I'm sure that you don't need my help. Oh, we 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 certainly do. And Alex Salter is an economics professor at the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech, and comparative economics research fellow at TTU's Free Market Institute. The author of more than 150 academic and popular articles and the co-author of Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions from Cambridge University Press, a number one bestseller on the Amazon macroeconomics charts. Congratulations to you. Last time you were here, you were promoting that. And we were mm-hmm. talking about why lumber was so incredibly expensive, which fortunately lumber's gone down. What You know, you, you kind of said, well, a lot of this was uh, caused, the inflation was caused by the pandemic. Where does it look about a year out from that interview? Where where do you think we're at? Is it monetary inflation? Is it pandemic inflation still? Why are we still paying so much for so many different things? Oh, boy, it sure does look different. As recently as last fall, we knew even at the time that prices were going up all across the economy, more for some goods than others, but pretty much prices everywhere were going up. And we knew that it was a mixture of too much demand and not enough supply. The question was, which of those is in the driver's seat and which one's just riding shotgun? Again, as of recently, as, as last October or so, I thought that the supply problems were the primary problems. I was worried about all the production bottlenecks. I was worried about commodities prices, energy prices, chip shortages, all that stuff that you heard talked about all throughout the winter. Today, there's no getting around it, though. It's definitely demand that's in the driver's seat. So perhaps the situation flipped. Perhaps it was just always uh, it was always a little bit misguided to view supply problems as the primarily binding thing. But right now the problem is clear. There's just too much total spending, too much liquidity running all throughout the economy. And yes, that is the primary responsibility of the central bank. So it's kind of ironic that I've spent most of my academic career being pretty hard on the Fed. And the one time I wanted to give them a break, the one time I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, Turns out I shouldn't have. Don't you hate when you like don't trust your your reflexive instincts and you betray your? <laughs> I do that all the time. Where I'm like, well, surely the squishy middle will save us, and then they never do. Uh, yeah, so that that's interesting. So, uh, how, how bad is the problem? How much money did we overprint? You know, are, are we slipping into Weimar Germany 
and and hyperinflation because when i hear we you know the libertarian uh that's sort of the libertarian mantra we're going to overprint so much money that will slip into hyperinflation everything will go you know we'll be eating you know out of trash cans as a as a country um you know it, is it that bad yet where where do you put it at the risk level no, it's not that bad yet. I don't think it will get that bad. Usually we don't start calling inflations hyperinflations until we're hitting about 50% inflation per month. And right now we're about 8.5% per year. So still high, still higher than we would like, but we're not in hyperinflationary territory. And I don't think that we would ever get there. But that doesn't mean the, the inflation we're seeing right now is not a problem. It definitely is especially for people who want to save in largely liquid forms of wealth, people who deal largely in cash, the unbanked. These tend to be less wealthy people, younger people, minorities. Inflation is quite literally eating away at their livelihood. If you're somebody who can afford to put all your wealth into equities, uh, stock funds, those sorts of things, you're probably doing okay. But those aren't the people that we should be primarily worried about, I would contend. It's perfectly reasonable to worry about the welfare of those who are most economically vulnerable. And those are the people that are getting really pinched by inflation. Why? Because they can't put their wealth in forms that scale with inflation, right? Any asset with a rate of return earns 5% in normal years. When inflation drives up prices, that's going to drive up nominal, meaning dollar-denominated rates of return as well. So when inflation goes up, interest rates go up, asset yields go up. What doesn't go up? Cash yields, because cash has a 0% yield. So when there's inflation... In purchasing power adjusted terms, your cash holdings lose you money. So unless you have the ability to easily put your wealth into forms of asset holdings that scale with price increases, you're really hurting right now. And again, the people that we should be most concerned about are people on the lower end of the income distribution, people who typically don't have access to the modern financial sector. Yeah. So to put it in to, to ter- other terms, so if I have a hundred dollars and inflation is going up eight percent a year, I have ninety two dollars at the end right. of, at the end of the year or instantaneously or just the purchasing power at that moment where where does that ninety two dollars come down over time or instant instantly if you understand my question no, I think I do. So usually when we're the average measure of inflation right now is something between seven and a half and eight percent or eight and a half percent, split the difference and call it eight. If you have a hundred dollars today, what you care about is the purchasing power of that one hundred dollars, the rate at which that paper in your wallet actually exchanges against the goods and services that you want to buy. At current rates of price increases, at the end of one year, what should happen is that what a hundred dollars could buy you today, you'll only be able to afford $92 worth of those goods and services in a year. That's what economists mean when they say that your real purchasing power goes down. When an economist distinguishes a a real variable from a nominal variable, that's just fancy economists uh, speak for distinguishing inflation-adjusted returns from non-inflation-adjusted returns. So yeah, you still have like the same face value of your money. You still have $100. But what you care about is what that $100 actually buys. At the end of a year of 8% inflation, you're going to be able to afford, on average, 8% less gas, food, shelter, clothing, all the things that you would want to buy. Uh, price increases don't occur that evenly or that proportionately across the economy. Some things go up more than 8%, some things go up less, less than 8%. But on average, 8% inflation means 100 bucks is worth uh, 92 bucks at the end of the year. 
Yeah, that that was going to be one of my questions because you know, how do you get that 8% number? Because some things seem to be a lot higher. And then like lumber, like I mentioned, it fluctuates up and down. And then, you know, some things are, I think, inflated because people go, well, there's inflation. Let me just charge a little extra here. Uh, It's not necessarily due to markets. It's just kind of people going, well, I think I'm going to have to charge more in the future. So let me charge, you know, 20% now more. Um, How how do you get to that 8% number uh, when the cost increase of things are across the board per item almost? Great question. There are multiple ways of measuring inflation. There's no one measure for the purchasing power of the dollar that's obviously correct and better than all the other ones. The most common measure of the dollar's purchasing power that we economists use is called the consumer price index. And as its name suggests, we just keep track of a basket or group of consumer prices Right? And we look at what's happening to those prices over time. On balance, if the prices in that basket are going up, the CPI, consumer price index, will go up. And if they're falling, it'll go down. But there are other measures. The Federal Reserve, our central bank, uses a slightly different measure, which is called the PCE index, personal consumption expenditures. It's a very similar thing other than the weights, the way that the inflation index is actually calculated arithmetically is different. But it's still for consumers' goods and services. But you could also measure the prices of producers' goods and services, things that businesses need, goods that businesses purchase in order to turn inputs into outputs and sell them. Producers' prices, if anything, are more elevated than consumers' prices. Those are up somewhere between 10 and 11% over the year. So while consumers are getting squeezed, it looks like the businesses are actually getting squeezed a little bit harder. So depending on what sector you're looking at, depending on whether you're looking at consumers or producers, depending on how you count, There's various ways of measuring all these things. What's important right now isn't what's under the hood. What matters most right now is that no matter what measure of inflation you're using, all of them are far too elevated. The Federal Reserve says that it wants 2% inflation in the long run on average. There's no measure of inflation where we're anywhere close to that. We're way above that, and it appears now, based on all that evidence that we have, that it is, in fact, the central bank's fault again. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of a common narrative that, you know, we want 2% inflation and then wages don't go up. And then you see that classic chart of, you know, especially in libertarian circles where Bretton Woods, two hits, and then, inf- you know, the cost of things goes ways up, way up, but the uh, wages don't. Why is Why do they target for 2% inflation? Is that a good thing? Is that responsible in your eyes? Can you explain that to me a little bit? It's not the worst thing in the world, but I dispute the premise of those arguments. Basically, most economists think that you need a small amount of inflation to sort of grease the wheels of the economy. I don't buy that. What I think that's ultimately good about that way of thinking is that whatever whatever the inflation rate is, you want it to be stable and predictable. You want people to have a reasonable expectation about the long-run purchasing power of the dollar. If for no other reason, then borrowers and savers and investors want to know what's the dollar going to be worth 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. If you have a good expectation about how much the dollar can buy you in a decade or more, that makes it much easier to write long-term financial contracts. That makes it much easier for people to save and invest. And that's ultimately how we get economic growth. So I buy that argument. But notice that the argument that I just gave you is compatible with pretty much any rate of inflation, right? It could be 2%, it could be 0%, it could even be negative, right? You could even have slightly mild deflation and chances are things would be okay. 
What matters most is the predictability of inflation. It doesn't need to be some positive number to grease the wheels of the economy. Expectations adjust, right? People will change their behavior in anticipating the future inflation rate. That's what you were saying a second ago about how people are expecting higher prices in the future. And so they charge higher prices today to compensate for that. That's exactly how it works, right? That's a very uh, expectations consistent argument, as an economist would put it. But if you look at long run U.S. economic history and U.S. economic growth for like the last quarter of the 19th century, during what we economists call the second industrial revolution, we actually had a slightly strengthening dollar over that entire time period. We had very mild deflation every year. Did that hurt economic growth? Not at all. GDP was growing like crazy during the last quarter of the 19th century. So what's the reason? The reason is we were actually getting more productive. Productivity was going up, the supply side was strong, and the money supply wasn't changing that much. So when you have a bunch more goods and services in the economy because of economic productivity and the supply side getting better, and the money supply is roughly constant, it must be the case that each dollar buys more and more goods and services. That's just another way of saying deflation. Right. And so the last the last quarter of the 19th century in the United States and elsewhere in the developed and industrialized world really is the death knell of this naive belief that you need inflation to get good economic outcomes and good economic growth. You don't. It is important that whatever's happening to the dollar's purchasing power, it's predictable and stable. It is not important that it's some positive number to grease the wheels. That's nonsense. So I think what matters most to people is the cost at the grocery store. You know, I I went to the grocery yesterday, spent forty dollars on basically thirty dollars worth of food. You know, it's it's uh, gas prices. You know, are what they are. We could quibble with that, but really, where I think people are feeling it is at the grocery, is at you know, fast food restaurants. You know, where the, the meal uh, that I bought yesterday at Steak and Shake was $15 when it used to be 11 oh. Um Yeah, I mean, so that's a pretty dramatic increase in the last two years since I visited one. Um, now, does that – do those costs go back down or do companies just kind of keep it there? Once you have com- some of this, you know, rapid inflation, I guess I would call it, uh, do prices eventually drop down? Do – you know, will will we see lower grocery bills moving forward or how how will things even out? How do you see things working out that way? Prices probably aren't going to come back down. That purchasing power that the dollar has lost, it's probably lost it permanently. What I do think will happen eventually is that the rate at which those prices are growing will slow down significantly. And importantly, they'll slow down more than wages. Right? Is 15 bucks a lot for a steak and shake? That depends on how much you make per hour, right? If you make 15 bucks per hour, yeah, that's an expensive meal. If you make 50 bucks per hour, maybe it's a more reasonable meal. So I think it's ultimately important in terms of the purchasing power of ordinary households. It's sort of a horse race, right? On the one hand, you have the prices of things that people are buying, goods and services. On the other hand, you have wages. I don't think that those prices are ever going to come back down. But you don't necessarily need them to come down. They just have to start growing more slowly than wage growth. And it's possible that that will happen, right? I'm paying very close attention to the central bank right now to see if they actually have the political will to shrink their balance sheet. Ignore everything that the central bank is saying about interest rates. We're going to hike interest rates by 50 basis points. Great, but that's not the relevant consideration. 
The Federal Reserve went from having just under $1 trillion in assets on its book before the 2008 financial crisis to something like $4.5 trillion of assets on its books in 2015-2016 to about $9 trillion today. That's a huge increase in money right, and liquidity in the economy over the past 10 years. Now, not all of that was inflationary, right? You might remember that from 2008 to 2018, we had a massive growth in the Fed's balance sheet, but pretty much no inflation, something like 1% per year. That's, there's a complicated economic story behind that we, that we don't need to go into right now. The bottom line is this time when the Fed put the pedal to the metal to fight the fallout from COVID, it did create inflationary monetary policy. It did create inflationary liquidity increases in the economy. The only way to get things back under control is to start to drain that liquidity. You have to take money out of the economy, which means you have to actually shrink the Fed's balance sheet. They're making noises like they want to. They say, we're going to shrink the balance sheet by about $95 billion per month, starting real soon. Great. Let's wait and see if they actually do it. Why don't they? What's the, um, what's the trade-off if they start doing that? Why are they nervous to do that? They're nervous to do that because it could, in the short run, give markets a jolt. Markets are used to this liquidity. They're used to the easy money. Remember all that stuff that I told you a minute ago about expectations? Everyone's formed these plans about the future under the assumption that there's going to be so much liquidity in the economy, that we're going to be in an inflationary economy and we're going to expect the price of everything to go up. If the Federal Reserve actually changes that pretty quickly, that's kind of like pulling the rug out from under the economy. So you would have to actually sacrifice a short-run economic slowdown, not a long-run one. There's no permanent trade-off between inflation and economic growth. There's no permanent trade-off between inflation and unemployment, right? That's another myth of uh, inflationary false economics. But nonetheless, once you've built all these expectations about what the Fed is going to do, if it turns out that they don't do that, your business model is not going to jive, right? It's not going to fit with the actual liquidity conditions that are on the ground, so we've got to see whether the economy can actually readapt its patterns of specialization and trade to new Federal Reserve monetary policy. Well, you just, I do think you, the Fed has to correct course. I don't think that it should not correct course just because it's afraid of causing jolts in the economy. Inflation is too high. We need it to come down. But that could cause some amount of market turmoil in the short run, three to six month time period. So you started out by saying that you you think it's actually a demand-driven inflation. There's too much money out there. People or businesses have too much money. I mean, if there's a slowdown, so that kind of helps dry some of that up. It kind of it, does that mean the economy is actually in better shape than maybe we all sort of think with the inflation? Like I think it's I think for libertarians we we get really nervous at inflation, right? Like it's just a little too too focused on it. I mean, but there's this growing sense that the economy's in peril. But if you say to me, there's a this is demand driven, and we kind of need to slow that down a little bit. That that sounds like people have a lot of money to spend. Is that a good interpretation? Am I right? Wrong there? Everyone's got a lot of money to spend. It's just a matter of what that money actually buys you. And the right. whole problem is the answer is not as much as before. Right. With COVID, we had a massive injection of purchasing power into the economy. Right. The federal government spent trillions of dollars that it didn't have. How did it finance that? It borrowed bonds. Where did those bonds end up? On the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed printed up new money out of thin air like that and bought the bonds. When you do that to the magnitude that was actually done, you're going to have a massive demand increase in the economy. 
Now, again, mea culpa, I didn't necessarily see this coming because I thought that the Federal Reserve could keep demand pressures in the economy more or less tamed by basically changing the interest rate that they paid to banks and keeping the liquidity uh, in the banking system. But of course, this time, the liquidity didn't go through the banking system. It went to people directly in the form of all that stimulus spending, the direct checks, right? So we sort of cut out the middleman, the banking system, which is why I and many other economists did not uh, predict this in time. So what that means is, yeah, the economy is running pretty, the economy is running pretty strong right now in terms of other variables that we care about. Inflation is low. We are actually producing a bunch more real goods and services. The way that we know that this is a demand problem rather than a supply problem is that everything is up. Employment is up, hours worked up, output, stuff that we're making up, and prices up. When all of those variables are moving in the same direction, that's your giveaway. We got a bunch of demand in the economy. Is that what fueled the Great Resignation? The Great Resignation? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah. So there is that question of whether people became wealthier enough due to de facto coronavirus redistribution that they decided that they were going to either leave the labor force permanently or take an extended uh, hiatus and basically reassess what line of production they wanted to be in, what line of work they wanted to be in. Coronavirus response policy almost certainly had something to do with that, but it also probably largely would have happened following COVID itself, right? Think about all the changes in the ways that we work and how long we work that were caused by the pandemic. Work from home, all those distance working things, remote work, people moving from uh, urban areas to rural areas because they can work remotely. A lot of that probably would have happened even without the stimulus checks, even without COVID relief. So I'm not willing to lay the entirety of the great resignation at the federal government's feet, but I do think that it probably contributed. Interesting. Okay, so final question. Not what you'd like to see happen, but what you think they'll do, because... Let's be honest. If you were in charge, we'd be in better shape. So where, where do you think the next 12 months, you know, six to 12 months uh, go? I think that we're going to get monetary easing, which is not necessarily the same thing as monetary tightening. I don't think that we're going to see a significant reduction in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. Remember, all those assets on the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, that's backing money, right? That's a representation of how much money there is in the economy. If you wanted monetary tightening, that number would need to come down significantly. What I instead think that we're going to see is we're going to continue to experience inflation, but the rate of inflation is going to gradually come back down. In about a year, I wouldn't be surprised to see it in the 2 to 4% territory. So that means that the dollar will have permanently lost a large chunk of its purchasing power because unless there's actual deflation, unless prices actually fall, the purchasing power of the dollar won't go up. Just the rate at which the dollar is losing purchasing power is going to slow down. So we saw the purchasing power of the dollar go like, like it just dropped precipitously in the last couple of months as inflation spiked. As that rate comes back down, the Federal Reserve is going to say, eh, this is good enough. We're going to get back in the neighborhood of 2% inflation per year, and that's going to be it. The dollar will remain permanently depressed It's not clear, though, that that's going to be a huge long-run burden because eventually wages are going to keep up. Eventually, people are going to be able to reallocate their financial portfolios to find assets that keep track with the dollar's purchasing power, except for the people that weren't really in the banking system and the financial system in the first place. 
I think that this is going to be a pretty tough couple of years for those who are unfortunately at the lower end or the lower rung of the economic ladder. They have cause to be upset, and I think that they should make their voices heard. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's the the programs that were meant to help people who were in perilous positions in 2020 end up getting hurt the most in the long run by that twelve hundred dollars the you know the PPP stuff. All right. Well, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. At, right. In English language, right? It's if you just needed one more example, Alex Salter, who uh, we appreciate your time. How can people follow you? You're a prolific writer. Where can they grab all that stuff? Uh, tell us how to follow you and connect with you. Yeah, happy to share. Uh, I have a public website, www.awsalter.com. I post everything that I write there, both popular articles, academic journal articles, uh, media appearances. So I do a lot of podcasts and radio too. You can find my stuff there. I'm on both Twitter and Facebook. You can find me there. I'm even on LinkedIn, but I don't share as many of my as many of my public appearances on LinkedIn. But yeah, I would love it if your readers would uh, shoot me a note and tell me what you think and tell me what else they would uh, what you would like to hear from me. That'd be cool. Great. And I'll put some of that. I'll put your website in the show notes so people can follow you and just keep up on this topic. We are generalists here at the show and you are an expert and we uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for explaining to us in like 25 minutes inflation in a way that I understood. So really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Alex. It was my it was my pleasure. We economists uh, sometimes make it more hard than we should to understand these things. Partly because the harder it is to understand, the better our job prospects, right? So <laughs> right. to keep it. All professions are a conspiracy against the laity. That's exactly right. You go to your doctor. Just run, okay, you need to put out talib. Okay. All right. Thank you, Young Voices contributor Alex Salter, and we will see you again on Saturday. Take care, Chris.